Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 20. Blessed are ye that sow beside all waters, that send forth thither the feet of the ox and the ass. Let's think together this morning for a few moments about seed sowing. This is one of those overlooked beatitudes in the Bible. We're all familiar with the beatitudes that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives us a series of blessed statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, and so on. Those are the Beatitudes. In the scriptures, however, there are a number of other blessed statements. Psalm 32, 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose iniquity is pardoned. Psalm 1, 1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. These are overlooked Beatitudes, blessed statements. And here's another. Blessed are ye that sow beside all waters. Now, obviously, this is one of many examples in the Bible of agricultural imagery. The Bible was an agrarian society. Our world is becoming increasingly urbanized, isn't it? But the world in which I grew up, and many of you, no doubt, was a very rural or agricultural kind of climate, wasn't it? The king himself is fed by the field, the wise man says, and agriculture is crucial. And interestingly, many of Jesus' lessons that he taught drew from agriculture, from the kind of country living that was paramount in his day. The nation of Israel was encouraged to go into the promised land because it was a land flowing with milk and honey. That is, the land would produce sustenance for them. They understood the importance of agriculture. And this particular passage, Isaiah chapter 32, has a historical application. It probably is set in the time frame of the 8th century before Christ when the Assyrians had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and they were threatening to invade the southern kingdom of Judah, Hezekiah is the godly king on the throne of Judah at this time. And the question that is paramount is really, whom do you trust in that day? I mean, do you trust foreign alliances? Do we feel like we need to rely on other countries to help us defend ourselves against the threatening Assyrians? Or do we put our trust in God? That's the ultimate question. And this particular chapter starts with a prophecy of a king who would be the ultimate political leader. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness and princes shall rule in judgment. And if I can just cut to the chase without going into too many tedious details on this chapter, this chapter describes the blessings of the Messianic age. It's a prophecy of the new covenant, or what we might call the gospel day. He first talks about the desolation in the land, that 
would come as a result of the uh, enemy's assaults. But I want you to notice verse 15, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field will be counted for a forest. Now this is describing a time of revival. When the Holy Spirit is poured upon the people of God, which happened at Pentecost, by the way. You remember after the ascension of Christ, the disciples were gathered in the upper room and the Spirit of God came upon the church. And the new covenant, if you please, the church age was launched. And we have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us throughout the entire new covenant. Jesus promised that much in John 14 to 16 when he said that the Holy Spirit will abide with you forever as the earnest of your eternal inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. That is, until resurrection morning, the Holy Spirit will be here upon this earth comforting, sustaining, strengthening, and equipping the church. So the prophet anticipates a day when the Spirit will be poured upon them from on high, and then he says when that happens, Verse 16, then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, righteousness will remain in the fruitful field, and the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever, and my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation. Now this is beautiful language. It's poetic imagery describing gospel blessings to the believer. I'm so glad I don't live under the law. <laughs> I'm so glad that I don't live under the Scare ye, scare ye, straighten up and fly right or bear the punishment. I'm so glad that I believe in grace. So glad that I believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ and we know the comfort and the assurance and the peace and the quietness that the Holy Spirit brings to our hearts. I love verse 18, And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation. By the way, my beloved, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a peaceable habitation and ensured dwellings and in quiet resting places. Do you know the reality of spiritual rest in a world of chaos and confusion? Do you know peace that passes all understanding? I ask you that question this morning. Can you take a deep breath and be at peace regardless of what is happening around you because you know the truth that it's all going to end up just as the Lord said it would. He will win in the end, and we will be safe with Him at last. The entire redeemed throng, my beloved, the gospel is a message of peace and quietness in this world of desolation and chaos. And then he says, in this gospel day, blessed are ye that sow beside all waters. So what I would say this morning about this passage is it describes a golden age of agriculture. And I think we would be safe to conclude it is spiritual imagery. Now what does he mean when he talks about sowing the seed beside all waters? You know that people in Asia grow rice. And uh, they grow rice in well-watered parts of the land, right? They have rice fields which are basically flooded and they cast their bread on the waters, right? Like Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1 says, Cast thy bread upon the waters, and it shall return unto you in many, after many days. That is, when they sow the seed by the waterside, or even on top of the water, it germinates and it produces a bumper harvest. 
they're seed sowers. And here's what I want to talk about this morning, my friends, is you and I, as we face the new year, this would be a good reminder for us that you and I are seed sowers this morning. And I think it's helpful for us to think of ourselves as seed sowers. Now, I can't control outcomes. When I lived in Georgia and had uh, little children back in uh, the 1980s, I was a part of a school program, a think tank that got together to uh, make some decisions about the trajectory of the school system in the years ahead. And uh, there was a new form of education or program that was popular in that day called outcome-based education. And the idea was that if we uh, have a golden view, we can target the curriculum right now to achieve certain results. In other words, we can determine outcomes. I want to tell you that that model would never work in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot control results, and you can't either. I can't control results with my children and my own family. I can't guarantee that they will turn out like I want them to turn out. But you know what I can do? I can, while I have an opportunity, I can sow the seed. I can work tirelessly and without fatigue. I can plant ideas and examples and I can do my best to take every opportunity to sow the good seed of truth in their lives. And if God is pleased to make it germinate, you see, he determines outcomes, but I don't. Okay, here's what I want to talk about this morning, God being my helper. I believe that you and I, my beloved, have precious seed in the Word of God. The seed is obviously referring to the Word of God. That's what Jesus says in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, verse 11. The seed is the Word of God. We don't get this precious seed, this heavenly seed, from the seed and feed store, from the farmer's store. We get it from heaven. And here's what I want to say. The preachers are seed sowers. A pastor is a seed sower. Every Sunday I come and bring a message. Whoever occupies this pulpit tries to plant ideas from God that are recorded in this book in your hearts and minds. We cannot, though, guarantee outcomes. We can't control the results. But we can continue to sow the seed. You do it in your homes. You do it wherever you go. We do it on a Sunday-by-Sunday Sunday basis in the context of public worship. And I think it helps us to remember that we are sowing the good seed of the Word of God. And listen, if you will, now to Psalm 126, where it calls this seed precious seed. Verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 126, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Now you think about a parent trying to train a child. There are tears involved, aren't there? How many of you parents have ever stayed up late at night or laid awake on your bed in the wee hours of the morning, tossing and turning, anxious and concerned about your young people? I've been there, you know, pouring out your heart in prayer, thinking, what can I do to get through to this teenager? And you know, teenagers get a bad rap, but some of it's deserved, to be honest with you. <laughs> I used to be one, and I know that some of it is well-deserved. But uh, you say, how can I get through to this young person? I know in the church, we have hopes and dreams. We want to see Zion prosper, don't we? 
And I think, okay, what can I do? I've come to this conclusion that the best thing for any of us to do is to remember that we are seed sowers and that the harvest is determined by the Lord. Paul says, I have planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And he is sovereign in whom he chooses to bless and when he chooses to bless. In other words, there's no magic formula as far as I know that we can implement. Now, we could obviously adopt some of the marketing techniques of the secular world around us. I know a lot of professing Christians have done that. They've redefined quote-unquote church, and they've said we need to address a certain demographic. We need to target this particular audience in our efforts to evangelize and to minister. But I feel confident that God would have us to remember that we are nothing more or less than seed sowers. And I can't uh, get inside somebody's heart and make the word germinate. You know, the fact is, if you, and I'd like to tell some of my friends in religious circles this today, that uh, if you rely on carnal means to get people into the church, you're going to have to maintain those carnal means to keep them there. If it's bingo games and popcorn pops and wiener roasts and basketball courts and all of that that's required to get them there, then you'll have to keep it up to keep them coming and interested. The fact is, we don't deal with a worldly kind of product here. We're dealing with a spiritual product, right? And only the child of God. I believe we have something here at Bethel Church that many of God's children want, and they may not even know that they want it right now, but I think God has many children who are hungry, who are starving to death spiritually in this world. I think there are many who are tired of the programs and the big business models of church life. And they want people that really know each other and love each other and will pray for each other. And where the word of God is preached, God has children. You know, I preached yesterday down in Georgia from Acts chapter 18 where Paul was told by the Lord as he was discouraged at Corinth, God said, Paul, keep preaching for I have much people in this city. I think God has many children in Myrtle Beach and Wilmington and Shalote and... Uh, Brunswick County and Horry County, I think God has many children in these parts. And I think many of them probably are beginning to tire of the cotton candy fair that is available from many pulpits in America. I'm not saying that we have it all figured out, but my beloved, if I have to be an MC, if I can't be a preacher of the word, then I might as well quit preaching and go to selling used cars and making an honest living. I can't entertain the troops. Preachers are not called to entertain the troops. They're called to preach the word, right? And it's this book which reminds us of the word of God, which reminds us of the God of the word. He's the one who's on display, right? And we want to learn what his divine wisdom is. So here's the thought this morning. Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. What a promise. You say, Brother Mike, it's hard right now. Well, harvest day is coming. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Isn't that a wonderful promise? God says that a harvest will happen. And he says, he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless, and I love that word, doubtless, come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You know, churches go through seasons just like we do in nature. Sometimes it's wintertime in the church and all you can do is batten the hatches and let's survive until springtime arrives. 
Sometimes it's harvest season and the Lord is blessing an in-gathering and you have people wanting to unite with the church. And sometimes it's springtime in which the flowers appear on the earth and everything is lovely and beautiful. It's a time of renewal, revival. I believe we all go through seasons in our lives. But my friends, we continue to sow the seed even though we're sowing in tears because the promise is we will reap in joy I want to tell you the message we have to proclaim is a rare commodity in this world. It's precious. That word precious in the Bible is more than just a romantic term. It speaks of something that is exceedingly valuable, something that is rare, like a precious gem or a precious antique. You can't find it on every street corner. It's precious. It is very costly because it's so rare. And I want to tell you this book and the truth of this book is a precious message. It is rare in this world. You won't find it on the major news networks. You won't find it in the newspapers or media outlets. You won't hear it from your political leaders or your celebrity stars or your professional athletes. I'll tell you where you'll hear it is in the house of God. The word of God is proclaimed in Zion. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. My friends, the truth that we believe, salvation by grace alone, that God loved the people before time ever began and made provision for their eternal happiness. Jesus came in the fullness of the time to implement the divine plan, and he finished the work. He completed the task that was assigned to him in the covenant, and he secured the salvation of all that were given to him by the Father. And then during each person's lifetime, the Holy Spirit will find each one of those that God loved and Christ redeemed and quicken them into divine life. And they're all preserved and kept safe in the love of God and through the power of God until Jesus comes again so that without the loss of one, the entire redeemed throng will be housed safely in heaven someday. My beloved, that's a precious gospel, isn't it? That is truly good news. So our text pronounces a blessing. Blessed are those who sow beside all waters. And I think we can learn something about the purpose of the gospel from this imagery of seed sowing. You know, a seed is never intended to change the nature of the soil in which it is sown. And I want to tell you the gospel is compared to seed Therefore, it is not the gospel or the word of God which changes the nature of a person. I can't preach to an unregenerate man and make him a child of God. What I'm saying is, and this is one of the distinctions between primitive Baptist theology and other Baptists and other religious groups, it is the distinction concerning the utility or the purpose of the gospel. What is the gospel designed to do? Is the gospel an instrument that God uses to help populate heaven? Is the preacher a link in the chain of salvation, of eternal salvation, that God is depending on me to help get sinners saved? No, my friends, the gospel's good news. News happened yesterday, and we're just reporting it. There's a text in Psalm 68:11 which says, God gave the word, great was the company of them that published it. So God has revealed the truth in his word. He gave the word. But my friends, I'm trying to publish it. I'm a publisher. Gospel ministers like a newspaper boy. They don't have them much anymore, but they once stood on the street corners saying, extra, extra, read all about it. My friends, that's what I'm doing this morning. I'm saying, extra, extra, read all about it. I have good news. 
You say, well, Brother Mike, I can go many places and hear good news. Well, you can't go very many places and hear good news. It's not in the typical media outlets. But my beloved, I have good news for you this morning. God is on the throne. Jesus Christ is a victor over death. He's the friend of sinners. He's your great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for you. And one day, he's going to split the skies, leading the heavenly train in his wake. And he's coming to vanquish every foe, to tread under his feet, the enemies of God and of righteousness, and to ransom every captive and present the entire family of God to heaven, saying, Behold, I am the children which thou hast given me. So I think we need to understand, my friends, that the gospel is not the means by which sinners are born again. The seed does not change the nature of the soil. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish, the means of their eternal salvation. Is that what it says? No, it's to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. That tells me that a person must first have a heart capable of receiving the gospel before it will do them any good. You might ask, well, where do they get that heart that's capable of receiving the gospel? Were they born with it? No. For every human being is born into this world unregenerate. He's born with a heart that is averse to God and righteousness. The natural man, says 1 Corinthians 2.14, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. What does that verse mean? It means that a person must be a spiritual man in order to receive spiritual things. For the natural man, man as he is in his first birth, is not capable, neither can he know them. I think it's interesting. He didn't say neither will he know them. That's certainly true, but the verse is even stronger than that. It says he doesn't have the ability to understand the gospel. What gives him the ability? Well, he's given a new heart. When God directly quickens one of his elect and one that Christ redeemed on the cross, when God directly quickens them, that is, he regenerates them, they are born again, and he does that, my friends, directly. He sends the Spirit into your hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus said, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. He's not talking about the dead in the cemetery in that verse. He's talking about the dead in trespasses and in sins. Man in his natural state. And he says, when they hear the voice, not of the preacher, but of the Son of God, they hear Jesus speak to them. They that hear shall live. He says, when they hear the voice of the Son of God, they shall hear. And those that hear shall live. They respond like Lazarus responded to the voice of Jesus, naturally speaking. So this child of grace responds spiritually to the irresistible call of God in the new birth. He does that by irresistible grace. He does that by an effectual call. My friends, in your experience at some point in the past, I think I could say this probably for most everyone here this morning, in your experience at some point, God has spoken to your heart. He awakened your heart. He raised it from a death in sin to a life in Jesus Christ. And now you have the ability because you're a spiritual person. You're spiritually alive. He's made you alive. He has quickened you and you have he quickened. That word means made alive, Ephesians 2, 1, who were dead in trespasses and in sins. At some point, my beloved, in your experience, God has given you a heart that is tender toward him, that is interested in him, and that is capable of receiving the truths of his word. 
There were some people, Jesus said in John 8, 43, who didn't have that ability. Why do you not understand my speech, he said, even because you cannot hear my word? For he that is of God heareth God's words. You therefore hear them not, because you're not of God. And therefore, the gospel is the power of God to salvation, not to the unbeliever, but to everyone that believeth. And you show me somebody that believes, who has faith, I'll show you somebody who's already been born again. For faith is a fruit of the Spirit. You say, then what is the gospel designed to do for the child of God? If it's not to help the Lord quicken the dead sinner, but it's for the living, then what does it do for them? It gives them light. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 says, The God who saved you hath abolished death. Now that's the fact of what happened at the cross. He abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That verse simply means that the gospel shines the light on the life that God has already given you. You ever walked into a dark room and stumped your toe on a piece of furniture? Or maybe hit your shin against a, a chair? And you thought, my, I need to turn on a light. And you turn the light on. The light did not make the furniture exist, but it revealed where it was, right? And the gospel does not make a person a child of God. It doesn't bring life, but it brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel, my friends, will give you an understanding of what God has already done. It's like the resurrection of Lazarus. The disciples didn't help raise Lazarus. Jesus is the only one who could give him life, but the disciples took the grave clothes off of him so that he could see who it was who saved him, who gave him life. And that's all that I do as a preacher, is I'm trying to help take the grave clothes. I'm sowing seed in good soil that the Lord has already made good, and I'm trying to sow it everywhere because I don't know where all the soil is, you know, but I'm trying to broadcast it. Now, most farmers today, when they sow a field, use a, a planter. They have a tractor and a plow and a planter that they can attach to it, and they, uh, it usually drills in many cases, depending on the kind of crop they're trying to raise. It'll drill the seed into the soil, then cover it back over. And then in a little while, it begins to germinate and sprout, and it grows, and uh, finally a harvest comes, and they harvest it. But you know, back in the Bible days, they sowed seed in a broadcast kind of way, right? And you've probably seen in third world countries, they still do this, you know, a, a agricultural worker will go out there with a bag or a bucket and they'll pick up seed and they'll just uh, spread it in the air and it broadcasts. And some of it falls on stony ground, on the cart path, right? That has been pressed down and the birds come and pick it up and eat it. And some of it falls on rocky ground, right? And it may germinate, but it doesn't have a very good soil structure to develop a strong root system. And when the sun rises, it gets so hot that it wilts and it dies. And some of it falls among the briars and the thorns. And, uh, and it may begin to germinate, but yet the existing weeds are so strong that they choke it out. They take up all the moisture and they block the sunlight off of it and they uh, choke it out. But some of it falls on ground that is capable of uh, producing a harvest on good ground. And uh, the same is true in the gospel. As you and I think about the need for evangelistic zeal in the church, the need to spread the good news. And by the way, we should be 
interested in that. We shouldn't have the idea that we've got a corner on God and we're just going to keep it all to ourselves. The fact is, my beloved, what he's blessed us with, he intends for us to share with others, right? God never gives us anything just for our own benefit. Every blessing is meant to be used not only to sustain life, but to minister to others. And when we think of the gospel, he's given us an understanding of his grace for the purpose that we might sow the good seed to others. We're seed sowers. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Let me read you the first six verses of this chapter. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Again, think of the person planting rice. Cast your bread upon the waters. Our text said, Blessed are they that sow beside all waters. So here's a farmer that says, okay, I've got a stream here, and I've got a lake over here, and I've got a river running over that part. I know that there's plenty of water around, so I'm going to plant the seed pretty close to it. You know, I'm going to sow beside all waters so that it has the potential for growth and development to maturity. He says, cast thy bread upon the waters, thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and also to eight. Sounds like he's talking about being open-handed, liberal, broadcasting. You know, not stingy and miserly, but give a portion to seven. Now, this verse is usually, cast your bread on the waters, applied to what we might call giving. If you give liberally, then God will take care of you. He'll return it to you. And I've proven the truth of that. But it can equally be applied to sowing the gospel seed. Cast your bread upon the waters. He says, give a portion to seven and also to eight. For thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. A day is coming, he says, when you may not have the opportunities you have right now. And by the way, in our world, there may come a day when the night arrives. You know, Jesus said, I, will, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day for the night cometh when no man can work. It's getting darker in our world if you haven't noticed. So he says, give a portion to seven, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. Now that's a given, we understand that. And if a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. <laughs> and I have no idea what the spiritual lesson is in that verse, but uh, I think again we could say that's a given. If a tree falls, that's where it is. That's where you'll find it. And he that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the cloud shall not reap. Now, every farmer knows that, that if you get up and you say, well, I think I'll hold off get, getting on the tractor today because it looks like it might rain, and then the whole day passes and it never rained. You say, well, I better get in there and sow this crop because uh, I thought it was going to rain yesterday. I missed a 24 golden hour opportunity, I better do it now, and then it starts raining on you that day, you know. But he says, you better work while you can. Under this idea of broadcasting, sowing lavishly, sowing without discrimination, he says, sow beside all waters. You sow lavishly, he says, because thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit. Again, notice that there is a mystery element involved in producing the harvest. So you keep doing what you know to do because you don't maybe understand how it all works, but you keep doing what God's called you to do because thou knowest not the way of the Spirit nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with the child. You can't explain everything scientifically, in other words, or mechanically, 
There's a mystery element involved. May I say God is involved in the life of the church. He's involved in our efforts to serve Christ in this world. And uh, therefore, our responsibility is to keep sowing the seed. Listen to this. In the morning, sow thy seed. And in the evening, withhold not thine hand. For thou knowest not whether shall prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike shall be good. Somebody says, Preacher, I've been preaching the gospel for a long time and I have very little to show for it. Well, there's always a place, of course, to, for self-examination to see if I'm preaching the gospel in truth and to see if I'm preaching it, uh, if I'm studying to show myself approved and if I'm working hard enough at it. Of course, there's a place for us to check ourselves. But in the final analysis, outcomes are in the realm of God, okay? Outcomes depend upon him. Still, we're to sow lavishly. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says it like this. For he that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. But he that soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. You know, the Apostle Paul sowed beside all waters. If you read the book of Acts and you study his ministry, you'll learn that he, when he was in jail, he kept preaching. If I was in jail, I'd be tempted to have a pity party and to lick my wounds and think bless my heart I can't preach anymore but Paul called himself in Ephesians 6:20 an ambassador in bonds I'm in bonds but I'm still an ambassador for Christ and in Philippians chapter 1 verse 12 I love this verse the apostle says I want you to understand brethren that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Paul says the very fact that I'm in prison, instead of crippling my effect as a minister, has opened up new vistas for ministry, new theaters for sowing the gospel seed. And by the way, when he ends the book of Philippians, he says in chapter 4, verse 22, all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Where in the world did they find Christians in Caesar's household? Well, they were converted, no doubt, through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Just as the jailer was converted in Acts chapter 16, and his whole family became converts and believers, and again, God had already touched their hearts. He had already given them spiritual life. That's the only reason they could have responded. But yet, my beloved, the fact that Paul was faithful to sow the seed when he was in jail, God honored that, and he gave him some fruit for his labors. Acts 16, Paul has gone to Philippi and he saw some women down by the riverside knelt together in prayer, a place where prayer was wont to be made. And Paul went down there and he started to ask questions and to preach to them. And God opened Lydia's heart. It says that she attended to the things that were spoken by Paul. Now, Paul didn't see himself as a tourist in Philippi. And then in the next chapter, he went to the mall at Athens. The Areopagus, where the philosophers were gathered together and discussing all sorts of philosophy. And he didn't see himself as a tourist in Athens, but he saw himself as a preacher of the gospel everywhere he went. You say, well, he's a preacher, like you, Brother Mike. I expect you to preach wherever you go, but what about me? I'm just a lay member. Well, by the way, there's not such a thing as a lay member. <laughs> the idea of laity and clergy, that distinction is a, is a papal idea. It goes back to Rome. We believe that every believer, every child of grace in the church is to be a minister. 
That doesn't mean they're all to be gospel preachers, but they're all to go wherever they go. We should see ourselves, my friends, first and foremost as followers of Jesus Christ. At work, before you think, well, I'm, a, I'm just one of the boys at work, but I'll put on a different hat when I go to church Sunday. No, my beloved, if you belong to God, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price, and therefore, wherever you go, remember that you represent the Lord Jesus Christ, and God will give you opportunities to talk to others. It may be a co-worker that's having problems in his or her life. Maybe they're having relationship problems, marriage problems, or maybe they have a child that's giving them fits, or perhaps they're having financial pressures, and you'll say, well, listen, I know it's hard right now, but um, let's pray together. I'll pray for you. I'll give you my word, and then actually do it. And let me tell you a promise that helped me from the Word of God. And you share that with them. Did you know that over time, if people see that you're sincere and genuine, they'll ask you a reason of the hope that's within you. They'll say, why are you different? That's really what happened in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas uh, were praying at midnight. And the, when the Lord opened the cell doors, the jailer took his sword, would have killed himself. And Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're all here. All the prisoners are accounted for. The jailer said, what must I do to be saved? He's saying, what makes you different than me? And how do you get the peace and the joy that you have? And uh, I want what you have. You see, my friends, may I say he saw something different in Paul. Paul sowed beside all waters in jail by a riverside on the mall in Athens. In Acts chapter 17, he took occasion to find an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And he preached the true God. To those academics and elites on Mars Hill. And in Acts 17, he goes to the Jewish synagogue, even on a ship. The Apostle Paul, in Acts 27, preached the gospel to the sailors and the other passengers on the ship. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, that I am made all things to all men, so that I by all means might save some. Paul says, I'll adapt myself to every circumstance within reason, morally, within moral parameters, of course, but I'll adapt myself to every circumstance in order to reach people with the truth that has set me free. Oh, my beloved, Jesus also sowed beside all waters. He preached wherever he went. John 4:34. Jesus found a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, and here her story is an example of sowing seed in atypical places. Jesus preached on the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, in a plain, on the Jewish feast days, he preached. And he has commissioned his people, his disciples, to spread the good news to all nations. Matthew 28, 18, he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach. And that word teach means make disciples. Notice he didn't say make children of God. For that's not our job. I can't do it. I can't make a child of God out of a dead sinner. Only he can give life to the dead. But I can make followers. That's what a disciple is. A learner and a follower. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing the believers. Baptizing them in the name of the Father. And once you've made a follower, then you baptize him. We're to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then teach those that have been baptized. Teaching them to observe all things. And that's what the church that's the primary function of the church is to take the baptized followers of Jesus and to teach them to be more and more obedient, to observe all things whatsoever he has commanded us. You say, well, Brother Mike, that's why we have a preacher, so we don't have to go and talk to others about the good news 
of the grace of God. Know my beloved, Acts chapter 8 verse 4 says that the disciples, not just the preachers, but when they were scattered at the persecution of Stephen, the disciples went everywhere preaching the word. We're to broadcast the good news and the word of God at every potential opportunity. And by the way, in this age of technology, it's easier and easier to let other people know what great things the Lord has done for you. Somebody says, are you seeing any, you getting any response from Grace Alone Radio? You know, this 24-hour, seven-day-a-week international internet radio station. Are you getting any response from that? I said, oh yeah, the Lord's people have been very interested in keeping it going and supporting it. And I seldom go anywhere, but I don't have several folks come up to me saying, I listen all the time and I've told my loved ones about it. Had one preacher tell me recently that they have a, lady in their church that's a nurse and the hospital was shut down and said they wouldn't let the loved ones come in to visit the the patient in the hospital and said this primitive baptist sister who's a nurse went from room to room in her entire all of her patients and she shared with them she took their phone if they want if they let her they wanted she talked to them about it and she downloaded the Grace Alone app on there and started it for them, showed them how to operate it, and uh, said, uh, you can listen to hymn singing, a cappella hymn singing, and sound Bible preaching, and uh, reading from the King James Version. Said she'd walk down the hall in the hospital and hear these patients playing primitive Baptist preachers in their hospital rooms. It's a wonderful thing. And uh, you say, well, Brother Mike, what fruit do you have to show for it? Are you getting any extra people come to your church? Not many. I wish we'd have to build on because we had such a capacity crowd. But I'll tell you, I can't control outcomes, but I can keep sowing seed, right? I want to keep preaching the truth. I want to keep using every opportunity. God may have somebody that's searching for what we have, that's hungry, and in his providence, he's able to lead them and direct them to stumble upon the seed that we're sowing out there. But still, my beloved, we can't expect that all of it will be effective. Some of it will fall again among thorns and by the wayside, and the devil will do what he can to pluck it up from the hearts and minds of people before it germinates. And by the way, I'm referring to the parable of the sower, if you haven't figured that out yet. In Matthew chapter 13 and Luke chapter 8, I think it is, Mark chapter 4. Still, the point is that we're to do whatever we can to sow beside all waters, whether through technology, through personal contact, through talking to loved ones, to remember wherever you go this coming year, my friends, that you're a representative of King Jesus. You have precious seed you're carrying with you. Other people need the joy and the peace that it has brought to your life. Don't hold it back from them. But my beloved, wherever you go, remember to do what you can to drop little seeds here and there, some handfuls of purpose, and may God give the increase to the glory of his name and the welfare of his church. For there is a special blessing pronounced in our text upon those who are engaged in this precious work of sowing beside all waters. Amen.